Come on. Strong, the powerful Peter Lazaroff has returned to Lifeblood. Welcome back, Peter. George, thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you back on. Peter is a CFA. He is a CFP. He is the Chief Investment Officer at Plan Corp and Bright Plan. Again, great to have you back on. Peter, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. So my personal life, since you asked it first, uh, I live in St. Louis. I have a family with two young boys, uh, almost ages eight and four. So they're definitely a handful in the vast majority of my personal life. Uh, beyond my personal life, I work at PlanCorp, which is also based in St. Louis, but has offices across the country. And as chief investment officer, I oversee a little over $5 billion in assets. So aside from doing that, I, I typically act as a megaphone for the company in the sense that I write for Forbes and the Wall Street Journal. And I have a book, Making Money Simple, and uh, post on my personal blog, do all sorts of videos, interviews, and fun stuff like that, and get to talk to cool people like you. So I, I always, I'm really passionate about investing. I'm really passionate about personal finance because it seems like a solvable puzzle. And so the fact that I get to talk about it all the time, it's pretty great. I, I'm pretty happy about it. Yeah. Well, amen to all of that. And we were talking a little bit before we pushed the uh, red button or however you want to fig figuratively say we started recording about whether or not I was going to have more kids. And we wanted to talk about minimizing regret and, you know, making decisions. And you're, you're managing $5 billion in assets. So making those decisions and then all the way down to what, what am I going to have for lunch? Every one of those decisions potentially carries with it regret. So just wanted to get your thoughts on, 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 on minimizing regret. Well, from a portfolio perspective, you know, it's a topic that's always interesting to me because people always regret missing out on different things. And when you think, you know, different investment opportunities, and when you think of major life situations, whether it's picking a career or choosing a spouse or deciding to have children, changing jobs, these are all really high stake decisions because each time you make a decision, it forces you to set aside all of the possible futures except the one you ultimately choose. And any potential future is completely unknowable in the present moment. But you know, when you can really easily see the alternative, that makes the regret feel a lot worse. And so with investing, it's really easy to see the alternative path. It's really easy to see what investments won or what investments lost. It's highly quantifiable. And so we often trick ourselves into believing that there's an objectively optimal decision out there in advance. And if we just spend enough time looking and researching, maybe we can find it. And if there's an optimal choice, then naturally there's probably also a wrong choice, so we think. And I think knowing that things can go wrong leads a lot of investors to put probably too much pressure on themselves to make certain decisions. Because in my opinion, there is no such thing as a perfect portfolio because we can't know in advance what strategies will and won't work. In general, when you, you just want to have a portfolio that you can stick with for as long as possible. And there's really common behavioral research out there that people refer to as loss aversion, where we know that the pain from gains, excuse me, the pain from losses hurt about two and a half times as much as gains feel good. And a lot of that has to do with regret. Um, and so I think that when, when we build portfolios at PlanCorp, there's always a quantitative aspect to it. 
the part of it that I've found most interesting in the past year or two is we've done some research and implemented some changes on it is how can we minimize regret in the process so that these well thought out strategies can be stuck to for a long period of time so that when clients are opening statements and they see things on the statement, how is that going to impact their regret or their level of understanding? And so I think it's really just trying to both build the portfolio that way, as well as take people through different exercises that might help them minimize regret, or at least recognize how they might feel if something doesn't turn out the way they want it to, but doing so in advance. What a really smart thing. I mean, so much about life is but expectations. So doing our best to manage those expectations along the way and super interesting, right? I don't know that I've ever necessarily thought about what you just laid out um, so well about how there's so much that goes into or so many variables that are present when making decisions about investments that can really screw us up because it's right in front of you. Um, Fascinating and just recognizing all of our emotions that, 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 that go along with it and our biases. It's so, it's so loaded. So, well, and we're all biased. I mean, you're mm -hmm. not going to take human nature out of humans. And so what can we do as advisors to acknowledge those human biases and build a bridge around them? Maybe, you know, I think it's unrealistic to remove our biases and we see it every day. It's, it's a different thing. I think for me, it really started to become evident as a second company that I work for called Bright Plan that focuses on corporate financial wellness. We have a digital app where a lot of the advice is delivered. And I think oftentimes when going through the process of building out features on that app, I find myself thinking, what would I do if there was a human sitting across from me at the table? But there's been some ways where as I've had to think about how to present something on screen that I'll never get to meet the individual that now when I'm sitting across the table from a human, I think of how would I put it on screen if I didn't get the opportunity <laughs> to explain them uh, what's going on. So it's it's definitely been interesting. And, and I think as chief investment officer, a lot of the work I do is saying no behind the scenes. So when we're looking at implementing a strategy, I feel like more often that we at PlanCorp are more concerned about implementing a bad idea than missing out on a good one. And so what that means is there's going to be a lot of conservatism when you go through processes, when you try to evaluate what product or exposure or time of change makes sense. And even something as simple as the choice to own international stocks, that has potential for regret. But we know definitively that it helps improve diversification. You know, so we own international stocks not to just en enhance absolute return. It's more about reducing risk which ideally improves the amount of return you earn for the amount of volatility you experience. But, you know, all is equal. Good diversification is going to mean you're going to own something, something that's losing at some point in time. And that means you're always going to regret that piece. And so how do you structure it again so that when you open statements without your advisor right there, or you pop open your cell phone and you look at your portfolio, how can you set it so that people's mindset is framed such that they recognize the benefit of it and that they're okay with it when it doesn't appear to be the winner at that given moment in time. So how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of education up front. I mean, I think that's the biggest. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I mention international, uh, international stocks, for example, international stocks have trailed U S stocks for over a decade now. Um, however, if you look at the 10 year period from 2000 to 2009, 
the S&P 500, which is large cap U.S. stocks, actually had a negative average annual return. And it was a, there was a 12-year period. That's just one decade. But if you extend it to 12 years, there's a 12-year period where treasury bills, one-month treasury bills, beat the S&P 500. So people forget that because it was a long time ago. And most financial theory works really well in the long run. The problem is the long run takes an eternity to live through in the moment. And so when I say you need 20 years, that's a lot of time. And whether you're, you may feel like you don't have 20 years if you're 60 years old. And I would contend that you do. You may not feel you have 20 years if you're 70 years old. And I would contend, well, one, you might, but two, your money's probably going to outlive you. And there's some time horizon to your money attached uh, to that portfolio. If you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you definitely have 20 years. Do you want to wait 20 years? Maybe not. And if that's a behavior we can identify in advance, well, maybe the way we construct the portfolio looks different so that you can't break out, you can't see the different pieces as underperforming. So if there's going to be a lot of behavioral issues, I'm a big fan of fewer pieces in the portfolio. But I also think, you know, beside the design piece and the design and besides the educating on why you own something like international, Hey, look, you own it because it lower, it increases diversification and better diversification reduces volatility and all else equal two portfolios with the same return, but different volatilities. The one with the lower volatility is going to have a higher compounded rate of return. And you can teach all that. And with numbers, it's a lot easier to grasp than just kind of saying the words out loud like this. But you can also walk people through some thought experiments as they think about changing exposures or the question of, should I invest my cash right now? You know, a lot of people build up cash and they want to know if they should invest it all at once. Is now a good time to invest or is the market too high or is it too low? Or should they drip into the market over time through a process that a lot of us call dollar cost averaging? There isn't, you know, there's a, there's a, probability in which investing it all right away is the best, you know, highest probability for success. But you have to think through what could go wrong. If you ask yourself 10 years from now, what sort of outcome would make me regret this decision? What that begins to make you do is think about the infinite futures that exists. And so just because you see an outcome, it often makes you forget all the other possible outcomes that could have occurred. So when you're talking through, should I invest my cash in the stock market right now? And I show you the data that says you should do it all at once because the probability suggests that's where you're going to have the highest expected return as opposed to waiting to invest to some magic number or slowly investing over time. Slowly investing over time is the best way to invest your ongoing cash flow. But if you have a big pile of cash, yeah, the, the data is pretty conclusive. You should do it all at once. Now, what would make you regret that decision? What would regret you, the individual taking my advice in, in my science and my data and thinking through that so that when it does happen in the moment, you remembered what it was that you were thinking. And in an ideal world, you're writing these things down. Cash, you know, this cash question is a really common one. Or maybe should I invest in Bitcoin? Bitcoin is hitting all time highs. You feel like you should buy it probably because it's going up in price, which, by the way, buying something because it's going up in price is not a real investment thesis. There are reasons to own Bitcoin. I don't feel like we have time to get into all that right now. Sure. Um, you could probably spend, we could spend hours talking about that. But what would make you regret the decision to invest? What would make you regret the decision not to invest? And I just feel like anytime you make a change to your portfolio or implement a new strategy or add an exposure, going through that exercise, it may feel a little hokey, but it, it really can make a big difference 
in the future because you've now mentally prepared yourself. And if you've recorded some of those responses, well, that's a, you know, when I say recorded, not necessarily audio, but just writing down, have your advisor write down those different things. It's sort of like keeping a trade journal, which sure. is the same way you combat something like hindsight bias, where what, what's ultimately going to happen is 10 years from now, if you don't write it down, you'll say, I knew it was going to happen or it was mm -hmm. so obvious. Um, just because the way our brains work, they take bits of information we have and attach them to whatever else is in our brain and make it seem obvious. So I think generally the mix of portfolio construction, education, and doing some of these thought experiments are ways to minimize regret, whether you're thinking about investing cash or buying Bitcoin or try, should we have value stocks instead of growth stocks or ESG stocks? You know, what are the things that there are so many opportunities to make a change we know the research says just pick one strategy and stick with it for the most part and you ought to be okay. Those are the ways that you can kind of go about combating those those feelings of regret. Got it. Well, that certainly all does make sense and it's, it, it seems very reasonable. If we could just use an example, um, and I think that Bitcoin is so top of mind for a lot of people. If you were to tell me Bitcoin right now as we're having this conversation is trading probably around $52,000 or something like that. Why would I regret buying it if it went to one thousand dollars? Then I, I, yep. I, I would absolutely regret <laughs> right. that. Uh, why? Why would I regret not buying it if it went to you know two hundred thousand dollars or sixty thousand or, or, or well, I don't know that that's the case. But if it went over a hundred thousand dollars this year, I would one hundred percent regret it. If it went to a million dollars, is 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 it then the time horizon? Well, okay, George. What about five years from now? If Bitcoin was, if yes, in six months it went down to five thousand, but it went back up to one hundred thousand or sixty thousand, would you still regret that? Is it marrying those two, or just in introducing different time horizons? So, in my opinion, the more detailed you can be about the things that would cause you regret or happiness, the better. And setting time horizons for success or failure, as well as reasons, potential reasons why they could be up that much or down that much are really important. The reasons might be more important later to prevent you from overconfidence and saying, I knew Bitcoin was going to go to 200,000 be because of the reasons that it ultimately did. Whereas if you go back and look at the reasons, you'll realize how luck played a role. And with a lot of investing, there's a, there's a mix of skill and luck. There's probably more luck than the average person wants to admit. The average professional recognizes there's a lot of luck in both timing and selection. And I think that how big of a bet you're making, notice I say bet at this point with Bitcoin, yeah. um, really probably drives the amount of regret. So think about there's there's a place in the summer that my family goes to in Michigan and I don't eat that much ice cream, but there's an ice cream shop that we walk to every night, whole family and kids are holding hands and mom and dad are with us and my sister and her family go and they have amazing ice cream. And I always feel this pressure to pick the right ice cream flavor. <laughs> and it had been a couple of years since we had been to Michigan, we actually went last summer for the first time in a while as a family, in part because everybody had little kids in their family, weren't sure if we could make it work. And we're walking down the street and we're walking back and I have my ice cream cone and I'm a little disappointed in what I picked. Ugh. And I kind of let it beat me up because I know I only have so many nights to get ice cream from this little ice cream shop. <laughs> now you could argue it must still be bothering me if I'm talking about it now, but realistically, no, I really don't care that I made the wrong choice of ice cream flavor. Um, it's a low stakes decision. When you, if I were going to put a tenth of a percent of my net worth into Bitcoin, 
how much regret I might have uh, if I'm wrong would be a lot different if I put 5% or 10% of my net worth into Bitcoin or any given investment. And I think there's something like Bitcoin that makes this so relevant because you have a fear of missing out. You have a lot of people who might make you feel unintelligent for not doing it. And because it is actually kind of a complex investment thesis, most people that I talk to who are in Bitcoin who are not financial professionals have really highly variant reasons for doing so that come down to they're only buying it because it's going up. That is their investment thesis. And so I think really thinking around the reasoning on not just what would happen to make you regret it or be happy. So Bitcoin going to a thousand would obviously make us feel regret, but thinking of the why is essential. Is it going to 1000 because the government starts to regulate it? Is it going to 1000 because people find major institutional holders start having it getting hacked and having their money stolen? Is there some sort of competing currency from the US government that digitize it and goes on blockchain and suddenly the evangelists don't think that it's a good investment anymore. I'm not saying this is my case. I'm just saying these are reasons it could go down, I suppose. Reasons it could go up is that more and more people actually transact in, in it as opposed to buy it and hold it. It's not a currency if people don't transact in it. Just because you're allowed to transact in Bitcoin doesn't mean that anybody today is actually doing so. They're buying it to have it go up. But it goes back to what I was saying earlier about being more concerned about implementing a bad idea than missing out on a good one. Um, and I think what that is in statistical terms, if you fast w f rewind way back to high school statistics and you talk about type one error and type two error, um, like the FDA, they'll evaluate a new drug, for example, and they seek to minimize the chance of approving a drug that is not beneficial to people's health or that causes bad side effects. And in doing so, they, sim they simultaneously increase the probability of failing to approve a drug that would improve people's health. And so I think of this, this is the trade-off between type one and type two air. And I think about this a lot with the portfolio, especially when you know that pain is going to hurt more than gain. And when there is ways to make evidence-based decisions, again, you can make an evidence-based case for something like Bitcoin. It's not going to be as robust of a case as some other things. And so if you're more concerned with implementing a bad idea than missing out on a good one, something like Bitcoin that's kind of going vertical, as they say on a chart, when a price just goes straight up, gives you pause, especially when you know that the most important part, in my opinion, to financial success, investment success is not hitting home runs. It's steady returns for a very, very long time. Average returns for a very, very long time is what you need for success, especially if you're a saver. If you're hoping to get rich on a single security, I mean, you look at the Fortune 100 most or the Forbes 100 wealthiest people list or whoever makes the list, you know, most of those people, the common thread is that they have most of their net worth tied up in a single security and it's the company they started. And that's fine. I mean, that is how you get wildly wealthy to have a home run really change your life. You have to put an outsized bet on it. And in general, you listen to all of the greatest minds. They say some form of other that good investing is boring or that you just need really average returns over long periods of time. You said to minimize mistakes to have investment success. Well, if minimizing mistakes is the most important thing, then yeah, I'm going to be more concerned with implementing a bad idea than missing out on a good one. And you and I both know people oftentimes put more time into researching a refrigerator purchase 
or <laughs> which airline ticket they should book than they do an investment. So I think it's kind of kind of trying to square those two. And when it comes to regret, it's really hard to watch other people winning. And I think there's something Bitcoin is a great example today that a lot of people are making money. And it would even if you were one of those people who have been making money for a, whole, a long time, it would be really hard to sell today. I can't imagine what it would be like to have bought Bitcoin three years ago or five years ago or even 10 years ago. You've done very, very well. Are you able to sell? How do you, hmm. you know, are you going to regret selling if it goes up? Or can you think of, I'm going to sell and take some profits and diversify and kind of lock in this money to compound at that boring rate of return over a long period of time? That's interesting. I'd never, <clears throat> I'd never thought about it from that perspective before. But yeah, fascinating. Peter, people are ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? Well, since we're going down such a boring path of not investing in high-flying <laughs> things, I still feel like everything that you can automate in your life is going to make things better. And that certainly pertains to investing. It certainly pertains to managing your everyday finances like automatic bill pay, but anything you can automate. And when you go and look up the definition of automate, you'll come to realize it's not just a technology thing. It means that you just have some process or system in place to get something done in a predictable, repeatable process. So I automate the cleaning of my house by hiring a cleaning service. I automate the mowing of my lawn by having someone mow my lawn. You can automate your finances by hiring an advisor, which is obviously a super biased statement coming from somebody at a financial advisory firm. But, you know, the more ways that you can find to have more time to be better at whatever it is that you love to do in life, the better. And so whether you're going to automate with technology or automate with other humans, I cannot recommend automating more. Well, that is great stuff. That definitely gets come up. Come on. Peter, thank you so much for coming back on. Where can people learn more about you? And what kind of ice cream did uh, you get that you weren't super happy about? We'll start with the ice cream. <laughs> I think what I was not happy about was the Mackinac Island fudge. Ah. And, you know, it, I remembered it being good and everybody else seemed to like it. I just wasn't that into it. And it just it felt like really chunky chocolate ice cream. I wasn't super into it. Um, <laughs> that was the ice cream regret I have. We'll, we'll have to... I did fix it the next night, although I can't tell you what I did get, which is pretty interesting. Not sure what that says. The uh, You can always find all of my material on peterlazaroff.com. You can also get customized content based on where you are in your life by going to smartmoneyquiz.com. It's just a quick nine-question quiz that I put together it allows me to send the content based on your responses that's most relevant to you. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to know what content you're interested in. So that's a real easy resource to find me. If you can't spell Peter Lazaroff, <laughs> smartmoneyquiz.com should be pretty easy for you. Love it. Well, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Peter your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to peterlazaroff.com. That's P-E-T-E-R-L-A-Z-A-R-O-F-F.com or go to smartmoneyquiz.com. Take advantage of the all all the thoughtful work that, that Peter's obviously doing. So thanks again, Peter. George, thanks for having me. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together.